So just a little bit of an introduction here. Uh, before Keaton Shaw and his partner Neil Patel hit it big with Kissmetrics, the web analytics tool that we all use and love, they went through thousands upon thousands of dollars on failed projects, even spending one, $1 million on a web hosting site that never saw the light of day. Eventually, Heaton turned to uh, Eric Reese's The Lean Startup Method and used that with Kissmetrics and Crazy Egg, both, which were wild successes. Not only that, but Heaton has gotten involved in some side projects, including ShareFeed, which recently got acquired by Joel Gascon's Buffer. Want to get into all of that, but first off, let's please give a warm welcome to Heaton Shaw, co-founder and CEO of Kissmetrics. Thank you. Well, first of all, he, oops, that's a, keep sliding. First of all, Heaton, I want to say uh, welcome to Zurb Soapbox. Glad to have you here. Happy to be here. Uh, glad, to, glad to talk and chat and all that good stuff. And I know the audience probably has tons of questions, and we'll get to those. We'll just ask a few questions, and we'll hand it off to you guys. But to get started, I kind of wanted to go a little bit backwards sure. in time. Um, before you and Neil started uh, Kissmetrics, you guys started ACS, which was a consultation firm. And you guys ventured eventually into products, creating some 20 of them. What were some of those um, particular uh, products, and why didn't any of them take off? Sure. Um, so uh, one of them was a podcast advertising network. I think it was 05, 06, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit earlier that we launched that. Um, and the main reason that one didn't take off is it was like a marketplace. And uh, we decided to partner with a development shop on it and decided to build it. Um, and uh, basically, we had, a very good, we, we had a very good idea of the podcaster and their problems, but we didn't really understand uh, anything about the advertisers or how much they would pay for reaching podcasters and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. that, you know, that was just one where you know, I think the pattern is we didn't understand something about the business. And in fact, the embarrassing part of that one is that uh, we actually, it launched on TechCrunch uh, like a lot of stuff does. And uh, basically, Michael Arrington told us the CPM that people pay for radio that we didn't even know. And he said that that's absurd what these guys are charging uh, or thinking they want to charge advertisers as a result. Right. So um, I would say that, like, you know, there's just usually there's a misinformation that you have or a blind spot that you have that you don't actually uh, realize. So, you know, that, that one's probably most interesting when it comes to kind of that blind spot that I see that we had. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of our other ideas had similar kind of issues. Did, were you guys able to kind of investigate that blind spot a little bit afterwards, kind of see uh, what kind of went wrong? And Yeah, sure, we did. But at the end of the day, it, it actually led to the point where it just wasn't a viable business. And right. the main reason is because, like, uh, advertisers are really excited about radio and kind of stuck mm -hmm. on that model. Um, and it would have been a real, you know, it would have been challenging to get them to shift. And if you, mm -hmm. if you think about it, there really isn't any digital audio advertising platform or marketplace today. Again, it's probably because the, the mismatches, you know, mm. still exist. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I should mention a couple other ideas. So um, an, another idea we had was uh, we built like a sort of like a buzz tracker to sort of like a social media tracker, if you want to call it that. We're probably one of the first ones to build something like that. And in that case, uh, you know, the failure was a little bit different where we kind of understood the market. So it was basically a search box. You typed it in. It crawled like Flickr and like uh, blogs and Technorati and all kinds of stuff to kind of just show you a search result of the social, social web, right? And it was super early. That was, again, 04, 05, I think. Um, and uh, so with that one, we were just scared to charge people. We just made it free. 
and let it sit there and just didn't think. <laughs> so, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't know any better at the time. Uh, and uh, and we, we didn't want to charge anyone uh, for some reason, although at this point there's businesses that have been built that, you know, have gotten sold to Salesforce and are, you know, thriving right now from charging for that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, like, both of those ideas were probably too early for their mm -hmm. time. Um, and what that means is that the market just wasn't ready, um, and we didn't really do our homework, mm -hmm. you know, on understanding the users and stuff like that. Was there also was it also too early for kind of like the freemium business model where you just put something out there and see what happens? Yeah, um, we can talk about freemium a lot. I, I'd say I'm probably a professor in freemium at this point. But uh, so so the short answer is no. It's never too early for freemium. Mm -hmm. The longer answer or more thorough answer is, um, uh, you know, every few years people say free is dead or free is mm -hmm. like the way to go. It just depends on your market, right, and your opportunity. I'd say that there's a number of reasons you could do free. You can do free if you think there's millions of people that could use your product for free and you're going to convert, if you only convert like a single digit percentage, that you can make a substantial amount of money. That's one reason you'd go free. Another reason you might go free is just so that people can sort of use the thing. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that might be a free trial, but that wouldn't really be freemium. Um, but, you know, there's scenarios where you have a couple hundred thousand market size and you might just want a free product so that you can sort of get word of mouth and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But it's probably really constrained and, and might not be that awesome, which means it might not get word of mouth, but that's a different problem. So anyways, I, 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 I'm not a proponent either way. I think it really depends on the situation, you know. Okay. Um, so. Right. And, and, and speaking of, like, all of these other yeah. products, um, there was also the web hosting site, which you guys did spend a million yeah. on. You know, kind of, you know, what kind of happened there, and uh, why is it that you guys never launched, and what were sure. some of the lessons you kind of learned out of sure. that uh, situation? Um, the, the, we, were, we were able to, you know, pour money into whatever we wanted to at the time because we were making money uh, having a, kind of running a pretty successful consulting company. Uh, very similar to Zurb in terms of the services-oriented nature of it. Uh, we always wanted to sort of build products just like you guys. Um, but uh, the, the, the difference, uh, not even the difference, the, the issue we ran into was like, um, I'd say we didn't really have strong uh, leadership focused on it, so we weren't really focused on it. We were focused on our consulting company that kind of paid the bills for it. So that's probably one sort of, I would say that's probably the least of the problem, but that was definitely an issue. Um, so we didn't really have enough focus on a project like that that, that you know, kind of snowballed, and then we just kept pouring money into it because we kept sort of chasing a, a dream that wasn't a reality and would mm -hmm. never be for us. Um, and just lots of, you know, bad decisions along the way. Uh, that's the one we probably spent the longest time on and most amount of money. Uh, and, and, but ultimately, I think just like with the other ideas, there's something fundamental about the marketplace that we didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, we didn't actually know what our opportunity should be and could be because we didn't really try to go figure out what the opportunity is in hosting. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of things come up in hosting that are small things, large things that have been successful. So it's not that we couldn't have been successful. It's just that we sort of blindly approached the problem and didn't really focus on a, a single customer pain or a problem that existed. And when you're in a really crowded market like that and you, um, you, know, you really need to solve I mean, you always really need to solve a problem, but you really need to find a deep problem and an mm -hmm. opportunity. I see. So it was, it was almost as if you guys 
hadn't kind of learned who exactly would be using the service exactly. And what problem they had, right? I mean, there's companies like Slicehost, there's, you know, um, all kinds of companies that have been successful because they focused on a niche and a specific problem and pain. Like, I believe, you know, Slicehost, it was really easy to get up and running if you're a developer, and it was probably one of the easiest products out there, although it's ruined now, but I won't get into that. Somebody <laughs> bought it. Somebody bought it, and someone made millions of dollars. Um, but uh, yeah, um, and it was one of my favorite products uh, yeah, for the last few years. But essentially, they found uh, an opportunity in a really crowded market and found a way to market it. And they essentially marketed it with developers, actually, mm -hmm. at the time, um, and Rackspace bottom. So, was it because you guys were trying to be like really broad in your approach, like just like let's cast this wide net and try yeah, to get people? Yeah, that, that's a good explanation. Yeah, we were definitely trying to be really broad with the hosting company. Um, and, and we just did all kinds of unnecessary things around the investment in it that uh, we didn't have to do to, be, to actually build a real business, right? Like we invested in a data center. We invested in a bunch of servers. We, uh, my co-founder learned everything about networks and s all kinds of switches and crap like that that he probably has completely forgotten, thankfully. Um, but you know, it, it, like we started learning about all these things that probably didn't matter. Right, they weren't really the riskiest part of the business. The riskiest part of that business was really, can we get customers to sign up for something for a good reason? Right, right? and we never tested that. So, <laughs> so user testing very important. Yeah. <laughs> very good. And 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 even through all of that, you eventually kind of turned to to Eric Reese's the Lean uh, Startup Method, yeah. which I'm sure all of us have read, and I think there's a copy floating around in the office. Um, but you did, you, you did turn to that, and once you did, when did you exactly do that? And then also, kind of what is it after reading all that that you realized had gone wrong with the other ventures? Yeah, so for us, um, we did have a success before that. So Crazy Egg was before we really uh, grokked kind of those concepts. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, um, in our own successes in our consulting company and some of our customers, and also with our Crazy Egg product, and even some of the other products we built, they got usage. Like the buzz tracker had a lot of usage, but you know it didn't. So it hit on a pain, but we didn't. We just didn't want to charge for it for whatever reason. Um, I would say that the 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 reason that I like I like the stuff Eric has put together more than anything else is that there's patterns and failure that I discovered about the things we did that um, are painfully described in the book. Uh, if you, you know, because I was really into the stuff before the book and went more into it with his blog posts. So there's a lot of patterns there. There's also a lot of sort of ways of like kind of um, dealing with, uh, dealing with kind of uncertainty and ways to discover what the pain is and the problem is uh, in your market and stuff like that. So we, in our successes, we found the same patterns or similar patterns mm -hmm. and a lot of entrepreneurs have as well. So, you know, having a resource and, you know, a community and content and all that around that was really useful. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I'm excited about it and like to tell people about it. Um, at the same time, you know, we're, we're all entrepreneurs and we think we're right. And, and, and I think that that's, that, you know, the, the, the book is, is kind of humbling if you actually try to go through some of the processes in there, which unfortunately still many, you know, very few people do even after reading the book. So. And, and to kind of go along with those... Uh, yeah. Uh, processes, what were some of those things that you brought from Eric, who's actually one of your guys' advisors, into both uh, Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics, and, and how, what do startups learn from your guys' mis missteps, and how do they actually turn themselves around like you guys did? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, one is like there's, 
you can call it a turnaround, but it's more so like if you try enough things enough times, something will work, right? <laughs> so, so that's, that's, you know, uh, uh, I think the big thing is like when I think about all these all these things we did, um, I, now I try to think about okay, how could I have known that it was the wrong thing to do with spe without spending as much money time, effort, energy, whatever it is, right? Because um, I, I personally always hate wasting my own time, but wasting other people's time and more than I even hate wasting money. I'll waste money, that's okay, um, because it'll, you know, there's, there's a lot of money around anyways. Um, but, uh, uh, um, but uh, you know, for me, it's really, really just the fact that uh, at, at any given time in any business, uh, whether you're starting out or it's like kind of, you know, like a business like Google, for example, there's a key risky thing in each sort of endeavor that you're working on, right? And, and, and the thing I've learned and the thing that I think that you know, helped us turn around, if you mm -hmm. want to call it that, or, or be more right, maybe, uh, is, is by actually figuring out what that risky thing is and addressing that first in, in, with the least amount of effort. Right? And that's really what I've learned from kind of looking at the patterns, reading the books and other books and other, talking to a lot of people, even talking to a lot of entrepreneurs. It's really just, you know, you, you, at some point, because you failed so much, you have this inherent like understanding of what you did wrong, but there's usually a pattern, and the pattern actually is you didn't you didn't do the right thing at the right time. And in the beginning, it's really and at any given time, even with Google, they have this issue. Like there's there's really risky assumptions they're making when they launch stuff, um, and when you see certain things of theirs fail, I think they just hit the they spent too much effort on the wrong thing, right? So to me, it's all about breaking down whatever you're doing and being honest with yourself about what the riskiest thing is. For example, in our podcast advertising idea, the risky thing was probably how does uh, probably uh, answering the question of do will advertisers pay for uh, audio ads on you know digital audio and podcasts, right? And we never addressed that at all. And and how is it that um, you guys nowadays, you know, assess very succinctly what that risky avenue is? And what are kind of the steps that you take to just address that and nip it in the bud before it becomes something bigger than it is? Sure. Um, I think that has a lot to do with understanding what you're actually trying to do. Um, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example of, of someone in the room that I just met today uh, in person. And uh, he's got an idea, and I know he's here, so it's going to be fun. But uh, he's got an idea, and his risky assumption, or I mean, his idea is basically helping small businesses um, market, uh, basically do mobile marketing, right? And, and, and I immediately heard the idea, and I'm like, okay, all right. I've heard that idea before. Um, and uh, and uh, what, he, what he said was that, no, what, what I'm doing is actually it's a SaaS product. And, and the product, um, I'm going to charge a monthly fee for it to these people. I was like, okay, that's more interesting to me because a lot of people try to give this kind of thing away for free and don't realize there's costs associated with it or don't realize if people are willing to pay. Um, and then as I, was, as I was talking to him, I actually realized he, he, seen, he already started talking to me. And he started three different companies before as well. But he started talking to me about the riskiest assumption and how he's already, it seemed like he already validated it. His riskiest assumption was actually, to me, when I started talking to him and when I just thought of it right now, was that if... If, if a small business does mobile marketing, basically, and sends out, let's say, text messages to their patrons, right? That's kind of the model. And somehow he has to collect them. So one risky assumption is, can he get those small businesses to collect, or to get their patrons to opt in to getting messages, right, from the business? That's one risky assumption. I'm not sure if that's the riskiest, because when you look at patterns of behavior, 
it's kind of happening already. Um, the other risky one, which I thought was very interesting because he already kind of talked to me about some conversion rates, was actually um, will people, if they receive the message, actually come to the restaurant? And without him even knowing it, he's here somewhere. I don't even see him, but whatever. Um, <laughs> he, he essentially figured that out. I don't know how long it took him, but for me, if I were to assess that idea, I would be like, okay, well, you know, the, the, it's really just looking at the user behaviors, right? Like there's businesses that, that want to, need to pay for it. Well, why would they pay for it? They'd pay for it if you can get them people in the store buying again, <laughs> right? And, and, and so I think he, he literally validated that. And if you think about it, you could easily have validated that in less than a week with no technology. Because you could have went in the store, printed something out, got people to opt into some phone, you know, give the phone number on, on some little, little website or some Google form or something on a website, and then literally got all the emails. And then asked the restaurant to tell you when you want, when, when you should send a text, right? And see if anybody comes in as a result of the text. Because you just say, show the text to, you know, get your discount or whatever it is. So, you know, that's, that's how I do it. Just think about the user behaviors, the different types of customers, and what's the, what's the piece that kind of is riskiest? Where if it's, basically the way to think about it is, if this is not true, I don't have a business. Mm -hmm. So if he couldn't get those customers or those consumers to come in the restaurant and spend money, mm -hmm. there's no business there. Because otherwise, why would anyone pay for it? Right. So anyway, that's an example. It's better with examples. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and sorry, dude. <laughs> now everyone's going to steal your idea. Raise your hand so we can all pelt you with questions afterwards. <laughs> so you should go work with them if you're interested in the idea. Um, very good. And, and, and it kind of also kind of segues away, you know, risky assumptions and taking risk and all that. And there also comes a point when you do build a product and you've worked on it for years and you, it comes time to exit. And... Uh, you know, you've done that with your side project, ShareFeed, recently with sure. Buffer. And, you know, a lot of young entrepreneurs, it's hard for them not to see that huge exit when, you know, you read about in, like, TechCrunch and all the other uh, blogs and stuff about, you know, billion-dollar acquisitions of Instagram and all these other things. But really, when is it that, you got, that people should know when it's the right time to sell? And how did you know with ShareFeed? Sure. Um, so uh, the, the, the general way to think about it is that companies, um, they don't get sold, they get bought. So someone needs to want to buy them, right? It has to make sense for them or you're never going to get anyone, you know, you go out to get, get it sold and, you know, you run into all kinds of trouble. I've seen that a lot. Um, or you have, you know, acquisitions that are sort of don't return money to investors or make you that much money. Um, and they're just done because you want to sort of end the thing. So this one scenario is you just want to end it, so you go look for a buyer. It really sucks. It's a bad scenario. Um, uh, in the case of ShareFeed for us specifically, uh, I'd already known the, the Buffer guys who bought it. Um, they were already building a tool. We built, uh, in, in, it's a Kiss, it was a Kissmetrics product, and we, we built the tool many years ago, and we had a user base, and people were still using it. Um, and these guys are just, you know, we, we, we'd been talking for a while because uh, they're just friends of mine, and I like helping them. They're awesome. And they're working on a problem that I really care about that we weren't really focusing on. Um, so it just made sense uh, to sort of let them have the user base and sort of, you know, mm -hmm. let them take it and kind of run with it. So that, that's kind of how we approach that. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at some point, I, I, in that case, I wasn't necessarily trying to sell it. I was just trying to offload it from my team 
So in that case, I actually, uh, we actually did have a conversation about that. I'm pretty sure I instigated and said, hey, I don't want this thing, right? And you guys can probably do something with it because you keep growing and it's there and it exists, right? Um, and so they're like, yeah, let's figure it out, right? So that was a pretty easy one because there's a mutual understanding and uh, I did try to sell it uh, on that one um, and it worked. Uh, but I had already known them and uh, you know, we had a really good relationship and I love helping those guys. So for that, I, it, was, it was just more to help them out is why I thought it was a good, a good thing. Um, I don't think they would have ever specifically approached me, mm -hmm. right, about it, uh, but they knew I had it, and I'd already been sort of helping them uh, informally, so. Very good, very good. And it, it almost seems like it was just serendipity, like they had something that they, that you were doing that you didn't need anymore, and yeah. they, had, they had a need for what you were doing. Yeah, and I was dying to use, have no reason to use it. So I kept using it, even though I should be using their tool. So, was, <laughs> you know, there's just some <laughs> dynamics there. So I'd say that's pretty much an anomaly, wow. you know. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and in terms of that, you've actually become an advisor yep. to them in terms of share feed. Yeah. And uh, what has that done going from CEO to advisor, and how has that kind of changed well, your perspective on things? Well, on that one, it was just a, 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 a part of our product, right? Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, not even a part. It was a separate product we built because it was a need that we had and it was a pain. So for me, it, there wasn't anything big there except that, like, you know, now I can advise them on kind of... Uh, how they can grow their business and stuff like that, right? So it was, it was pretty simple. There wasn't any sort of CEO psychology or anything going on there in that one. <laughs> what is CEO yeah. psychology? I don't know. I mean, no <laughs> you're implying it, not me. <laughs> I tried, folks. I tried. Um, there'll be a book in the fall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. No books ever. But, um, <laughs> um, but to, to go along with that, the, the theme of, of knowing when to sell, you guys also recently showed... Uh, sold off um, your uh, web survey tool, yeah. uh, Kiss Insights, as yeah. well. Yeah. And with that, um, first of all, you know, kind of why yeah. sell that? But you know, was there something also there about it not fitting in with Kiss Metrics' overall mission? Yeah. And and how how did you guys know it was just time to let it go? Sure. Um, so that was more than serendipity, and there's a different story there. So that that one is interesting to talk about. So it was yet another thing that my team built uh, and I we built. Uh, a couple years ago, and it was actually a growing business. Uh, it made money, it was profitable in its own little bucket. Um, the, the problem with that business for us was that um, our main business, Kissmetrics, is really sort of taking off, um, not even sort of, it's taking off, and we couldn't pour resources on the other product. Right? Like We couldn't go spend the engineering time that we would have wanted to to make it grow even more and make it a more substantial part of our business. So you know, I, you can always figure out how to make something strategic if you've already built it and, and keep it, uh, which was easy for us to do for a long time. But we, we sort, of, sort of saw the, the darkness at the end of the tunnel versus the light on that one, where it was like, eh, if we keep going at this pace, customers won't be as happy as they should be um, in the long run. We haven't improved the product in a major way in at least about four to six months. Although we maintain it, we kept it on because it was still making money and profitable. Um, and, and Sean Ellis, who bought it, uh, was already an advisor to the company, mm. and he'd been an advisor for a long time. He uh, gave us advice on building it early on as well, uh, so he's really helpful there. Um, and uh, his own current business was sort of going through a, a pivot and a realization around what their big market opportunity was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was, we were just talking about it one day, right? And uh, uh, he, he, you know, it, it came up that, like, you know, some of the things he wanted to do were very related to what we were already doing there. Uh, so um, we, we just figured out a deal, and honestly, that deal happened in, you know, less than a month because we already knew each other. We're really uh, we're friends, and it was a very good deal for both sides. 
right? Like uh, we, we made money um, and he got a product that's making money that he can take and, and, and sort of have a accelerated growth mm -hmm. on that otherwise he'd have to build up to that point. Mm -hmm. right? And we'd already been in the market of, I think about two and a half years or so mm -hmm. and it was making money, it was a SaaS tool. Uh, so it was, again, more opportunistic on both ends, um, and it was someone I already knew, right? In most cases, a lot of acquisitions are people you don't already know as well. Actually, that might not be true, but, you know, that, that's, an, that's, that's the way sometimes it works, or a partner you have. So you can think of this as we had already partnered with him. He was our advisor. He was a pretty very helpful advisor, always has been, and uh, his, his business was taking sort of a, another turn, and, and it, it was right in our eye shot. So, you know, we figured that we should do that so we could focus on our main business and not have to worry about it. Because we were spending, you know, at least about, I'd say an equivalent of about 60 hours a week, you know, out of our team working on it. So that 60 hours has been a relief. Um, and a lot of it was customer support and mm -hmm. some engineering and bug fixing and stuff like that. So just a smart move, right thing right, to do. Right. It's just, it's like one of those things where it's like this one aspect needs more attention than the other. Yeah. And how do you kind of Pretty much. switch everyone to the, the thing right. that's actually... Right. And, and make and make it a good thing, right? Because right. like if we would have shut it down, we wouldn't have made any more money from it, right? And we wouldn't have got any benefit out of that. And so you know, it was just a good timing on both parts and everything. Um, and also for us, uh, you know, that one was a little bit harder because we spent a lot of time on the product emotionally, right? Like um, spent a lot of time on the product, had a lot of ideas of where it could go, um, and had a lot of customers on it. Mm -hmm. We had tens of thousands of customers on that product. Very good. Well. That, those are my questions, and I yeah. want to open it up to the audience. We've got about uh, 15 minutes or so, and I know a lot of you are itching to ask questions, and there's a lot of you, so uh, I'm going to, uh, if you just want to raise your hands, I'll pick you, and uh, you can ask Heaton uh, your question. Make them good. Yeah. You had your hand up first. I, I make no presumptions on quality. <laughs> I'm just messing around. <laughs> the, typical, uh, the question was, in regards to scale and having a... Uh, freemium model, how do you get customers to go from one tier to another tier? Well, I mean, first you have to decide whether it even makes sense to have all those tiers. Like in Kissmetrics, we don't really have a free plan. We have a free trial. In fact, it went from 30 days to 14 days recently. So now our free trial is only 14 days. Well, before uh, last quarter, I guess, three, four months ago, it was uh, 30 days, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, I would say first you want to figure out what what makes sense for your market, right? A uh, free product could make sense for us because Google Analytics is free. People are used to that. We just haven't figured out something that excites us to do for free yet. Um, so we haven't done that. Um, and in terms of from a free trial to paying customers, I think one of the best insights that we, we've gotten, at least in B2B with Kissmetrics, is that once they sign up, um, or the fact that they signed up, means they're highly motivated. All you can do is screw it up from there. And all, all of us do is screw it up from there. So my thinking there is always like, well, they signed up. How can we make sure that we're learning about everything that they might need that we're not thinking of and sort of addressing that one by one? So what we do is we spend a lot of time talking to everyone that signed up that might not have done the behavior we want them to do next. Like in our case, it's like if they sign up, they need to integrate the product, right? And in some other companies' case, it might be like a project management tool. They need to create a first project and invite a bunch of people, right? So what we, what we spend a lot of time on to understand is why did someone not do something? Right? and really um, sort of analyze that and figure out why they're not doing it and sort of support them. So I'd say you know, the framework I would think of when I'm thinking of how to move people through steps in general, um, you know, B2B, B2C, anything, is like figure out why they aren't doing it. And the way you're going to do that is by actually talking to the people, surveying them, um, you know, running uh, Kiss Insights surveys um, and stuff like that on the people that didn't do it. 
right? And that's when you actually get the most insights, and that'll help you figure out what kind of uh, changes to make and A-B tests to run. That works in everything. The question was, how do you apply the lean startup methodology to large organizations and enterprise-type businesses? Yes, uh, the process you want to go through, regardless of market, enterprise or not, is talking to them in person so, or, or on the phone. So that, that applies regardless. It's not just about surveying. Right? And the other end of it, um, the short answer is yes. In fact, um, uh, this guy, Steve Blank, who's a professor at Berkeley and Stanford, his stuff is all about enterprise like originally. So it's a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany. He has a new book called The Startup Owner's Manual. I just look at those books. I mean, they, they tell you how to go through this process. You have to map the org chart and you know, talk to 5, 10 of them and give them different presentations. He's got it all mapped out. So in fact, a lot of the stuff is B2B. I mean, it works across B2B, B2C. One of my friends has a car company. And he's applying lean methodology and customer development, all that stuff, to a car. Like, they build the prototype in their office. Like, it's just crazy, right? So if they can do it with a car, like literally a car, it's actually more like a car motorcycle, but anyways, um, that doesn't fall down. It's really crazy. Yeah, lit motors, there you go. Yeah, they're doing it with cars. So, you know, and they're doing it with probably a, a hundredth of the budget. Anyone else would do this, would get to the same place. Yeah, he knows. Next question. The question was, how do you go about testing products and gauging interest in the market? Yeah, um, if you, your, your job is to figure out what pain people have anyways. Whether it's a new market, you know, like that one, or even you're resegmenting an existing market. So if that's a scenario, then there's some pain. If you find the pain, there isn't that whole problem of I've never seen it before. Just, just think about anything that's like, especially when it comes to a business customer, right? On the consumer side, like, People can use things so fast, even if they haven't seen it before. You, if you can give them a very happy experience, you know, within the first sort of session or the first you know, couple hours of them using the product, you're usually fine. So it's really just finding the pain. No matter what market it is, if you find the pain, then people will buy, you know, if, if, you, if you're hitting it and it's what they need. The question was, uh, to go back to the KISS Insights uh, questions, why not just go ahead and hire more people uh, to maintain the site rather than uh, having it acquired? Sure. Um, there's a bunch of strategic reasons, but besides, it's just focus. That's all it is. It's, it was two products. It was even the share feed being a third one, right? And uh, we even have another one that just sits there and we're not doing anything with. We might even have a fourth one. Um, and, and so all those didn't matter as much. This one was making money. So... Um, we didn't want to support it. We didn't want to spend any energy on it. We'd rather hire for our main product, which is growing faster. So why did you build it at the first time then? Uh, we built it at a time years ago when we were experimenting with things. We didn't even think it would start making as much money as it was. I want to get that gentleman way All in the, the back, back who's been uh, raising his hand for a while. Uh, the question was, if Heaton was around, when uh, Google was still young, would he advise them on selling to Yahoo? Uh, I wasn't, first of all. Uh, I, think, I think someone probably, you know, sort of understood the opportunity there and were, was willing to help them take the risk at that time. So, I mean, I don't know. I'd tell them, take as much risk as you can. You guys are young. That's probably what I would have told them, you know, at that point. I know. I'm not an investor, it doesn't matter. 
I would have been like, do whatever you guys want. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> so I'm not an investor, though. And I can't put that hat on, because I'm not. Not that kind of investor, at least. Yeah. The question was, how long should a trial be, and how do you go about deciding what your pricing tiers um, should cover? Yeah, so we, um, I, think, I think on a higher level, be open to trying stuff, right? But do it in an educated way. So for a while, actually, honestly, I wasn't open to lowering it. Like, I got pressure from all kinds of teams in my company, like, oh, let's lower it. I'm like, oh, all right, you know? <laughs> And then it just probably clicked in my head at one point, and I was like, all right, we can try it with a certain percentage of users, right? Um, so, you know, and, and trial period uh, is a very interesting one on B2B companies or even B2C companies because um, you, you give them too much time, and sort of what ends up happening, at least what we've learned, is that they get unmotivated or they feel like they have so much time that they don't actually spend the time to go do what they need to do. And in our product, you have to integrate it. Right? So the 14 days and the compressed time makes it so that they only sign up when they're ready, number one. And we know this because we've tested this, surveyed them and stuff. Um, and they also are way more highly motivated to integrate it. So they might come and say, oh, I only have a 14-day trial. So I'm not going to come back and sign up until I'm ready. So our amount of visits it takes has gone up a little bit before they sign up. But our con honestly, our sign-up conversion has gone up by 14 for the 14-day trial. I have no idea why. And a lot of our other metrics have literally doubled with the 14-day trial. So all, the big thing I would say there is just don't, be willing to try things, but also know why. So we had problems with, you know, 30 days was too long. And, you know, in our product, you have to get, you know, at least one or two other people in the company into it if you're a large enough organization um, and you're just beyond a startup, which who we get the most. We get more than just startups signing up for our product. So um, the 14 days has really been helpful in moving the ball forward in the organization that needs to integrate us. Right. So that was why we did it. Yeah. The gentleman in the purple shirt, he's been waiting for a while. Um, can you talk about the audience member wanted to know a little bit more about sure. the structure of the uh, two acquisitions. Yeah, in either of those scenarios, we didn't, we didn't, uh, no, none of the team members went over. Um, I've seen a lot of acquisitions at this point and deals made. Um, I'd say I'll talk more generically because I think that's important. If, if you have um, basically the, the cleanest way that I've seen is if you have two, um, two kind of two sides of it, one is your assets in the company. So all our sales have been asset sales, so they're basically money for the assets. Very straightforward, very simple, and it's either valued on revenue or valued on the asset, you know, whatever the other side wants to value the assets at. And when it's a, a revenue-generating business, there's usually some kind of uh, yearly run rate multiple that's, you know, done. And if it's SaaS, it's like blah X or whatever, right? Um, and that's pretty standard, and people know what those numbers are. Um, the other side of it, though, when you have a deal and you have, like, a team going as well, you basically have uh, a process of the other company, in most cases, interviewing the team and then basically giving offers to every member of the team, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, equity, um, shares or whatever, and uh, 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 what is it, salary and stuff like that. So those are actually, in most cases, two separate sort of uh, parallel tracks that you take because some people might not want to join the acquiring company, right? And then that could hurt the deal, but, like, that, that's the cleanest way I've seen it done. There's other lots of messy ways, but usually it's just, you know, employees and, and kind of team members and salaries and equity and compensation. And then, um, and that includes earnouts and stuff like that if they stay. And then the other side is the asset value of the of the actual, you know, product. I want to get someone in the back, the gentleman way back there. The audience member uh, wanted to know uh, if he should buy an office space or stay in his garage 
as per the lean methodology. That's not true. That's not true. That has nothing to do with the lean methodology. So first of all, that's not true. No, it's not. Uh, it's up to you. Do you have team members you need to collaborate with that are, you know, you can't get in your garage, for example, because there's not enough room or your mom's mad or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's very personal. Like, in our company, it's been four years. We didn't have an office till this June, right? And we've been all over the U.S., one guy in Australia, and that's how it's been. Um, I don't wish that upon anyone at this point, though, but like, that's just because of how I feel today, right? I might change my mind. Um, so I, I think it's a very personal choice. Typically, um, people like working in offices, so it might be a good idea, or working together in one place. You've got to give your mom equity. Yeah, mom needs equity. There you go. <laughs> the gentleman with the glasses uh, and the black shirt. The question was, when it comes to people signing up and not using the product, how do you go back and kind of figure out what went wrong? Do you talk to a specific group of people or do you favor another group over another? How do you do that? Uh, depends what you're trying to improve. So, you know, the first step is to figure out where's the opportunity. So your opportunity might not be in the people that don't do it because 80% are doing what you want them to do. That 20% might not be that important because you're probably not going to move the needle there. Right? But if it's flipped and 20% of the people are doing what you want them to, want them to and 80% are not, then in that scenario you want to go focus on the 80% that are not. Right? Um, so it, it just really depends on where the opportunity is in the business as to what segment you go for. The, the good thing is, like, um, or, or, or the way to think about it is you want a segment. <laughs> so that you have that difference, so that's an important piece. And, and it, it, potentially even prior to that, you want to basically baseline your metrics to understand where, where do you need to improve, right? So the mistake I see people making is either they're not segmenting between those two or even uh, deeper segments like uh, type of user, type of business, stuff like that, or gender or age or things like that, or um, they're not baselining, so they're just sort of shooting in the dark. I want to improve my sign-up process. Okay, why? What part of it? Right? Where's the opportunity in improving your sign-up process? So, you know, it's those kind of questions that I would be asking in that scenario. The young lady in the white shirt. The young lady wanted to know uh, whether there was a period of support after the acquisitions. There, there, there's usually always a, a period of support, yes, so, absolutely. So that means your team cannot go off right away. They will, you know, yeah. yeah, but we got money. <laughs> yeah. The question was, how have you learned to keep focus, and how do you continue to do so? It's painful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we used to suck at it. We were really bad at it. So uh, I think it's a, it's a, it, it, you got to have that realization that if you focus, that's how whatever you're focusing on moves the fastest, the furthest. And just that realization takes time because, like, honestly, I even try not to think about any other startup idea that I personally get excited about except what I'm working on today. I have enough of it when I talk to other entrepreneurs and stuff like that, but, like, I don't think about anything. People ask me, what are you interested in? I'll give them a space or a category and say, that's it. Right? I don't got anything. I don't have any ideas in it, but I'm really curious about this. That's, that's the extent I go because people keep asking me, but it's just the maniacal, like, I'm focused on this. This is what's important to the business. And, and everything I think about is directed towards that. So it's not that I'm not open to ideas, but they have to be about that. Right? So once we got our organization even thinking more like that, everything started moving faster. 
that we got 14-day trials instead of 30, because I got enough pressure. <laughs> the question was, have you ever had to raise funding, and how did you do so, and did you even have to bootstrap at a time? Yeah, so I've done both, um, uh, and uh, I, 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 there's actually not much difference in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of difference. I think, uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you have to build a business either way. So my recommendation to most people who are thinking of raising money is like, have you built a business yet? Are you making any money? Do you know how that business is going to grow? Like, like, have you validated assumptions around how it's going to grow? Right? And if you haven't done that, then spend more time doing that. Because at the end of the day, even when, a, when you go out to investors and they're looking for money, or you're looking for money, they're gonna, they're, they might not tell it to you like this, but essentially they're assessing you, your team, your market, your product, and your traction, and just trying to figure out a reason to say no. And usually that reason has to do with some risk that you haven't already invalidated. Right? Or they don't feel confident about you sort of being able to you know, cert, um, kind of you know, climb that mountain and look on the other side of that risk. Right, which is, so I would, uh, you know, in either scenario, I'd say make money, don't stop. And, and usually money comes to you if you're doing that. We had one last question and make it a good one. I'll let Heaton pick the person this time. <laughs> you can fight for it. No, you've, you've been raising your hand for a while, so. The question was, when did you uh, invest in a sales department? Sure. Um, yeah, we do. We, 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 we did that pretty late, in my opinion, um, which was uh, middle of last year. Uh, yeah, I'd say if you're B2B and you know your business is either enterprise or, or, or it's, a biz, it, it's a type of business where people, it's a type of business or a price point where people are just not going to pull out a credit card and pay online, um, then I think you need, you need a sales team. So today, if I were to restart Kissmetrics and start it again and have the same market opportunity, I'd have sales from literally the first day, potentially co-founders in sales or founding team would be an inside salesperson uh, or VP of sales. But it depends. You know. Very good. Um, we're just about a, out of time, and I want to thank Heaton for coming. My pleasure. Very uh, good to have you here once again, and I appreciate everyone coming out to Zerb Soapbox. We'll have another one of these next month, and I hope to see you all here. Thank you.